practicing. Yep. We are live. Carlos, good morning. Good morning, Matt. How are you doing today? I am 80% okay. That's a lie. I'm 79% okay. According to Whoop Recovery. How are you? 79 is a little bit less than the 90s, than the 95 plus range that you were at for a while there. Spoke too soon. I am 92% today. I am over 90%. That's nice. What's it feel like? It feels good. It I, I feel energized. I, I feel I feel I'm feeling I'm feeling good today. I know this 92% is the result of the marathon training I've been doing, building up that uh building up that uh VO2 max and 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 building up those um uh the heart rate kind of my HRV is up and I know that's you know from all the work I've been doing in the last few weeks, getting those miles in, uh, building up, building up my aerobic endurance. How much of the recovery score do you think is placebo? Where like you'll wake up feeling like dog shit, and then you'll look at the app and go, "Oh, I'm at ninety three. Actually, maybe I feel good." And vice versa. You know what? Honestly, I think there's a lot of placebo for me personally. Uh, a big reason why I enjoy, I like my whoop is because I am a bit of a hypochondriac and that I'll think that I'm not well, or I think that I'm not feeling good that day or like waking up feeling like, like dog shit. And then I'll look at my recovery score and it's okay. And I'm thinking, okay, you know what? You're fine, Carlos. Just move on with your day. Stop thinking about how, uh, how you might be unhealthy. So yeah, I actually, I actually lean into the placebo effect a little bit. Yeah. And you know, what's funny. I also do that. Um, more so in the positive and never usually not in the negative. And sometimes I'm a hypochondriac too, but here's what I mean. So when it's, when I wake up and I'm like, damn, I feel good today. And I got a pep in my step. And then I look at my score and it's like 59 like I'll have a brief second where I'm like, oh fuck, maybe I don't feel as good as I think I do. But then I tell myself, screw it. I feel great. Like I'm feeling good, whatever. And then the other way when it's really um, high, but I wake up feeling like crap, I also, I'm like, you know what? Maybe I am just fine. And I've noticed the whoop just kind of helps me stay positive. So buy a whoop strap uh hashtag whoop sponsors love love the whoop and what it what it's doing what it does for us so cool um matt anything else new in your life anything anything you got going on recently i'm about to have my perfect day again i get to play baseball tonight so that's always good how about you? Uh, playing golf uh, tomorrow, so that's always part of that's that's part of my perfect day. It's it's always something to look forward to for me personally. So, yeah, feeling you know, I think that also helps to the ninety two percent. You know, knowing that that's on the horizon helps the mental mental side of 
of of uh, of the health. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. But um, let's dive in. We have a new segment not not a new segment but a new approach maybe to this podcast yeah a little bit of a different structure today testing it out testing out a different structure uh we're kind of just just leaning into the doubling down on the put up a number uh segments that we we've done a little bit in the last couple of episodes it's fun Um, yeah it's really a great i think a great way to to start a conversation, like a jump off point into diving into a, a topic or two. You should walk into a bar and try to make new friends and just your approach should be, you should walk up to someone random that you do not know and just kick it off with a number, just like $3 billion. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and then you just dive into a long spiel, how you came up with that number and see how, if it works for you. Yeah, I think with very little context or zero context, that's going to be very weird, very creepy, <laughs> and it's going to be awkward. Or, or you might build a reputation as the most interesting person in the room. I I doubt that, um, but I'll try it. I'll let you know. Or maybe someone out there can try it. Take one of these numbers that we're about to put up, go to some random person in a bar, see what happens let us know please (laughs) let us let us know how it goes all right yeah dive in what's your first number my first number is 1.8 cents so one cent almost two cents and that's that's how much youtube pays per view on average to their content creators so this is from influencermarketinghub.com and you know youtube let me ask you this matt how how, do you watch youtube how often are you uh, checking out videos do you watch it for fun or do you watch it mostly when there's something you know someone uh someone shares a video with you or 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 what yeah so you engage with youtube at all i I have channels I'm subscribed to. I watch YouTube for like just in time learning kind of stuff. Like if I need something in the moment. Yes. Or if I'm like trying to fall asleep at night, sometimes I can't. So I'm like, let me pop open YouTube. And I always wind up finding something on like outer space that I I do think is interesting, but it'll help me fall asleep. It's peaceful. Yeah. Um, And then I guess the third way I use it is I'll binge. So recently I just watched a video on debunking elon musk's success like an interesting point of view about like how he's not actually the great success or basically he pulled the wool over a lot of people's eyes and i was like oh i i'm i'm a fan of elon musk i i'm someone who appreciates his success but i liked hearing the other side of it so I went down a rabbit hole for like eight hours and I was just watching video after video of this. And I was like, holy shit, this is like fascinating. The Anyway, I guess my point is I do watch some YouTube, but it's not like a part of my everyday routine. That's interesting. The fact that you went down a rabbit hole is a big part of what YouTube wants you to do as with any social media app, but it's very easy to do on YouTube. 
especially with prolific content creators who have a, you know, a very specific niche or a very um, specific lens in which they they create content. I'm fascinated by YouTube and as a business or and and as a platform, you touched on a lot of things that YouTube does well, right? The 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 rabbit hole, getting you down there, but also um, uh, in just in time learning. YouTube is actually, I think it's like in the top three social um, search engines um, out on the internet. How many people do searches on YouTube or rather like, on you know, in Google and find a YouTube video because they want to learn, you know, how to fix a leaky sink, right? Or, right, all those, like you just said, just-in-time learning. So it's all on there, um, which... Yeah, it's fascinating because it's a visual way to learn, which a lot of people need. You know, they don't want to read. They want to watch a video and someone explain to them and show them how exactly to do to do something. So um, I also use sometimes use YouTube to watch, uh, to, to fall asleep as well. There's a lot of channels I follow where there's people who have these specific voices that I'm just, I'm, I'm engaged with, but also like I will fall asleep to their voices. There's one guy who, breaks down Marvel movies. I'm sure everybody has seen one or two of these, you know, Easter eggs and such, right? Um, yeah, for some reason, his voice puts me to sleep. But anyway. Neil deGrasse to- Tyson. He'll knock Neil, me right out. Neil's got a great voice. It's 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 like his cadence, the way he delivers facts, he really, he really like lands certain... You know, he, he he like he hits certain beats, right? He he really stresses certain like facts to let them sit and marinate with you, which which is mm-hmm. I appreciate for sure. Um all right, two cents per view basically, or point zero one eight dollars per view. That's how much a YouTube earns um per on average per 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 view. Or another way to think about it is eighteen dollars for every one thousand views. So that's another way to think about it, right? YouTube pays their content creators 55% of the revenue generated from channels. Um, and YouTube takes 45%. So, so they're paying their content creators more, which is, I think, super smart. Because that's that's really their product at the end of the day, right? That's what's That's what drives their platform, is the people who create the videos for it. Is that... Yeah. Do you know if that's up or down from when TikTok got popular? I think it's always been above 50%. Okay. Um, I think that's always been their intent intent was to like, well, once they realized that, you know, once they were were generating revenue, right? From their, from their advertising, which obviously is, I mean, I think that's a huge chunk of their revenue. I should have looked into what that breakdown is, but there's YouTube Premium, which I have trialed, you know, for three months. Did not end up paying, continue paying, but uh, I mean that is you know the the premium subscription plan. I'm sure people are paying that. They also have YouTube TV, uh, which a lot of people I know, I know of a lot of people who use YouTube TV, uh, who are you know cord cutters don't have the traditional cable. Um, they get live sports. You have YouTube TV. Is that, uh, yeah. is that what you just indicated? So I have a bunch of the streaming platforms and no cable. 
when did you do that? When did you decide? Did you ever have cable at your house? No. Oh, yeah, yeah. Growing up, we had cable. Growing up, right. right. But in your adult oh, life. Right. So, no, no, no. Uh, in my adult life, I had cable for a bit. And then I realized I only use this to watch like Met games. So it's such an unnecessary expense. And anytime we would watch a movie or a show, it would be on Netflix, Hulu, or whatever. So now I just don't have cable at all. And if I want to watch a Met game, I will illegally stream it. <laughs> come come get me. <laughs> Never going to catch me, coppers. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, live sports. Live sports, huge reason why people still have cable, still subscribe to live television. Uh, I that's I think that's certainly going to change here in in the next one or two years. Gosh, the media landscape is something that it, it's a it's a topic for a whole uh, for a podcast in and of itself. But yeah, so it, yeah, go ahead. Coming back to that number, though, the yeah. almost two cents of you. Do you view that as good or bad? I think it's good. I think it's. I mean, I think, you know, thinking about it for as as $18 for every 1000 views. I think there's and I think that that by the way that number varies. I'm not sure what the exact scale is or what the what what how it varies. It varies on topic. If you're there's some high um I know for a fact that if you're if your content is focused on real estate, for example, YouTube will pay more, pay out more for your content because uh, I think there's, it's it depends on the advertiser, right? So advertisers know that if you're looking into real estate, you might have a little bit more spending power, so they're gonna pay more, uh, pay more uh, per click, right? So the premiums go up and down, or whatever. Anyway, back to your original question: Is it good? I think it's good because it, it well, first of all, I think the 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 number to consider when to really consider when evaluating whether that's a good number is the is the the revenue share number 55%. So they're paying more. Basically, I think it's good because it's a viable way of making money, of making not just a side hustle but a living and obviously a lot of people do YouTube full-time uh creating content uh maintaining their channel um and when I say full-time of course I mean it's you know their primary vehicle for uh, creating an audience. Uh, YouTubers will almost certainly have other types of side hustle of hustles to supplement the YouTube income. So you'll have a, almost certainly a Patreon, right? Which is that top tier, you know, for the champions of your of your pers- of your channel of your brand, whatever you've created. You'll have probably a merch store of some sort drop shipping maybe you've you know you've whipped up some really quick one and you can sell a t-shirt stickers something yeah. on the side patreon's... and then go on sorry patreon's interesting we could get that that's that's another platform that's super interesting and then there's going to be there are a lot of educational channels as well i've previously said in this podcast that i think a lot of youtube videos are just podcasts they're they're video essays which, you know, have a visual element to the script, to the the dialogue that's being talked about. But, you know, you don't really need the visual element a lot of times. So um, anyway, it's all education. It's a lot of it is educational and they create these courses, right? You can sell a course. Um, 
And that's, that's another way to supplement the YouTube income. Um, I'm just, I'm fascinated by the fact that it's a viable way of making money. Um, and it, it, you know, it's, it's a lot of kids today, uh, the younger generation, they'll cite YouTuber as a aspired career which is fascinating as well. I mean, I think social media influencer, a lot of people will, you know, categorize YouTuber under social media influencer. I actually think it's different, right? I think it's a very, um, a separate career that, that, that could, you know, as of right now, um, is a viable option. What do you think? What do you think of YouTube as a career for, as, as an aspired career for kids? So I have two trains of thought on this. One, I think two cents is paltry. Absolutely paltry. Um, two cents per you, view. Per view. You just need so many views to build up sizable income to make it a career. Obviously, right. you have your side hustles on top of that. So you also, th this is my point of view. I'm someone who like if I was making 60K a year, I would not be happy. But for most of America, like that's a fantastic living and you don't have to go to an office and work on someone else's boring, crappy business that you don't want to be at. Like you're doing your own thing on YouTube. So if you're making 60 K on YouTube, good for you. Like that's fantastic. Um, I, man, I feel like you need hundreds and hundreds of thousands of subscribers to pull off a successful YouTube business. Like if you're just starting I don't know. I just don't think that starting out today is going to be very easy to build up a oh, size no. of income. I mean, it's going to take years. It's it'll take time. And let me let me just I um well, sorry. You you said you had two trains of thought. That's one train of thought, right? Do you have another one? Did you have another one? Yeah. So the other one is if you are building up a TikTok channel and driving that to like a longer term, longer form content kind of thing, then it's probably fantastic because TikTok's like candy. I watch people just zombie out on it and scroll and scroll. And if you could somehow find a way to get someone off of TikTok to your YouTube, that's probably a fantastic way to grow your audience. Um, and then, yeah, if you you have side businesses, you're selling a course or you're selling something related to your YouTube channel, then you're probably going to make great money. But if it's just YouTube, yeah. if your plan is just to start an interesting YouTube channel, just expect it to take years. I don't know. Right. No, absolutely. So that's, I think that's part of the, one of the reasons why I actually admire YouTube's, YouTube's business model and the fact that it's two cents per view, 1.8 cents per view, because it makes you, it, it creates this like barrier to entry almost. It, it, it requires that you put in the work. And so that to be successful, so that no one just like, oh, I'm going to start a YouTube channel and just record myself and upload it. And hopefully that makes money. Like we do that, you know, once a year or once every two months or something like it, you to actually do it and be successful. You have to really dig in and um, be consistent, right? Create that content, refine it. Uh, like it requires you to, to, to create quality work, whatever that means to get an audience. So I actually kind of appreciate the fact that like it takes a while 
and they make the threshold kind of where it's at with this two cents per view or $18 per thousand views. Um, and obviously you're, you're beholden to their algorithm. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're reliant on their platform, but you know, I like the fact that like, you gotta like, at, if it's full-time probably you're not going to start off as a full-time, you know, person like oh, today I'm now full-time you're doing, you, you, it's a side project. It's a side hustle. You're doing it on the side. Um, you're putting stuff out there and one day just kind of, you know, I think a lot of people, if, if you're doing things right, um, you kind of start hitting this kind of um, algorithmic like growth where all of a sudden you, your, your, your channel picks up an audience, it, it, the, the, the algorithm picks you up, starts showing you to more people, starts showing you to the people who are going down those rabbit holes. And what I kind of appreciate about it is the fact that you you can go down rabbit holes and you have all this previous content for people to view. So that's yeah. all there. And that's always going to be there, right? Unless obviously you take it down or YouTube takes it down. But like if you build a library and, and like, right. okay, yes, you're, you're going along and you've got like 200 views, you know, per video. And that's what it's at for like a year and a half. But for whatever reason, one video suddenly, you know, takes off. In theory, a, a lot of those those viewers will also start looking at your old content, and 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 you know those numbers stick up too. So in a way, it's like I don't want to say passive income, but it is like a body of work that could generate income for yeah. you later down the road. I appreciate that as well. I think that's I think that's cool for the platform. That's a cool thing about the platform. Yeah. I mean, if you grow to a certain level, it definitely is passive income. Like if you have a million subscribers, right? Like if you get to that level and you have the library of content and you're getting, you know, a million views a day across your, I don't know, 800 videos, right? Because you released interesting stuff. At that point, you're making $18,000 a day on average on you stuff know, you created two years ago. Right, right. Can you guess how many channels, YouTube channels, have a million or more subscribers? I would guess 500 or less. According to InfluencerMarketingHub.com, it's 25 to 30,000. Holy crap. A lot yeah. of people watch YouTube. A lot Is of people that... are engaged. So a lot of those channels are superstars like Justin Bieber, Rihanna, right? right? Like the right. the people the these these media people these people in the influence or um in the public that you would expect if they had a channel to have more than a million views or subscribers but i mean a lot of those channels right are people who just did it for a long time you know i've also you know there's i've heard of people who get to a million and it takes years and then getting to 2 million is like like less than like six months or something, you know, like yeah. once you reach that threshold, your growth is again, like on an algorithmic rocket ship type of um, trajectory. And yeah. So anyway, that's, that's fascinating. 25 to 30,000 channels estimated to have a million plus subscribers. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Good for them. Um, that was an interesting topic. There's probably ways we can like, 
Go on. You were going to say something else. Oh, no, no, no. I was going to say, um, basically, like, content creation, right? It's a lot of how it's a big part of how people make can make money online, right? Um, yeah, I'm fascinated by it. I think it's it's interesting. YouTube as a business, as a thing, uh, as a channel, or like a, a means of making money. Yeah, I, I'm certainly going to talk about it more in the future, I think. Yeah, I think this is why we're both fascinated in software around content creators anyway, right? Like this treadmill ain't slowing down. This is going to keep on growing, compounding. I mean, the creator economy in general. It's just going to keep compounding for 10, 20 years. There's no shot this slows down. I think this, we're like, I feel like the creator economy is like the natural evolution of human output, creative output for sure, right? And it's going to keep growing. And uh, the businesses that support that growth or do the underlying software related to it, they're going to grow in tandem with the growth of that economy. So it's a good place to be. It's a good place to be. Um, The tools to help support those content creators for sure. You know, I think one of the amazing things, uh, you touched on something that made me, that reminded me of the fact that YouTube is a channel that you own and there are no um, censors. There's no one telling you, I mean, obviously YouTube has, it's, you know, uh, guidelines for how or what kind of content that you should be putting out there. And, you know, if you're a good human, you're going to put good content out there. But what I'm saying is like, no one's giving you editorial, like, uh, feedback and saying you have to do it this way. It's all, it's a channel you own, right? It's, it's, that's, that's the content. That's a big part of the content creator economy, right? It's like Mm -hmm. owning what you have or owning what you create. Anyway, all right. That's my first number. That's that, that I put up. Let me let me do one more, and then we'll get to yours. Sound good? Cool. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Um, this one is an interesting one. Um, I think in terms of how people are working in 2023. So, according to the Wall Street Journal, an analysis of uh one month of Microsoft Teams software usage found that the number of virtual and in-person meetings that were scheduled between 4 to 6 p.m. each day was down 7% year over year. So minus 7% is the number that I'm putting up there. And yeah, I think it's just interesting that more people, or rather more managers, more, more bosses are you know, saying four to 6 PM, like, let's not, let's not have a meeting. Let's not do anything. Either you're getting work done or you're, you're, you're doing something else that you need to do in your day. And, you know, let me ask you this, Matt, like, what do you do between four to 6 PM generally? Like, is that, and then separate question is going to be, you know, what's the best time of day for you to get stuff done? Yeah. So to answer the first one, four to six, I'm mostly when it, when it comes to work stuff, I'm vegging out. And what I mean by that is I'm usually at the end of my energy cycle for the work day and I'm just wrapping work and preparing it for tomorrow. Um, if I have a meeting 
in that time frame. I mean, I'll pay, obviously I pay attention, but I prefer you don't schedule a meeting four to six. It's just like, come on, man, it's that end of the work day. Like, and I understand time zones change with remote teams and for someone's 4 PM, it's 1 PM somewhere else, but you got to be cognizant of who you're inviting to that meeting. Um, yeah, I, I'm mostly ready to wrap the day by 4 PM and just close up shop and get ready for a good day tomorrow. Don't schedule me a meeting at 4 PM. Don't be that person. What is the best time of day for you for a meeting? Probably, honestly, and this has changed lunchtime, like 12 to one in the middle of the day where I could break up. Like, that's the other thing. Don't schedule a meeting in the beginning of the day when I'm like the most energy, ready to hammer out some code. If you schedule, I think the best time of day for meetings is like 1230 to 230. Catch me in the middle of the day. Let me get a little break in from critical thinking. I think that's the best. How about you? I'm right. I'm with you. Middle of the day, specifically right after lunch, because I like to talk to people after they have, have had a meal, after they have had something in their stomach, because they're less irritable. Generally, people will feel a little more, you know, less hangry. If anyone, if hangry is a thing for you, if getting angry because you're hungry is a thing, which honestly, I think it's something. You know, ask my wife, she'll tell you that I'll get angry when I'm hungry, right? Um, Yeah, I think it's smart to just, you know, know when someone, just know that like people think better on full stomachs. Um, People aren't going to be like looking for the, you know, looking to leave the meeting if it's right before lunch. So like 11 a.m. while, you know, oh, end of the morning, great time, 11 a.m. Eastern or whatever the time zone you're in great time to have a meeting because right before lunch, well, I often find that, you know, people are like eager to go or they're like, you know, kind of just, they're not really concentrating on the topic at hand. They're more like thinking about what they're going to eat, <laughs> you know, yeah. or like, so I like middle of the day, but even more specifically right after lunch, right after eating something. Right. Um, I, I think remote teams, there should be like a, a Bible of meeting culture that just all remote teams can agree on and everyone just follows it because I think there's best practices. Um, so like another one would be don't schedule a meeting when I have another meeting on my calendar 45 minutes prior. Like I don't like meetings that have 30 minute or 45 minute gaps because then I just can't get anything done all day long. Yeah. Right? Cause it takes you so much time to get into a state of focus. And then Absolutely. when you're in it, you want like a good two hour block. So if you've scheduled a meeting at, I don't know, 1 PM, and then you've got, it ends at 1.45, and then you got another one at 2.30. Between 1.45 and 2.30, I'm probably not going to dive into work because I'm just thinking about what the last meeting was. I'm thinking about what's coming up at the next meeting. Now I'm surfing Reddit, like... You have to be cognizant of lost time as well when you are scheduling meetings, right? And I think I've seen a lot of companies start to focus on this. They'll have uh, plugins to their Google Calendar that'll say the cost of this meeting. So if there's like 80 people in a meeting, it'll say this meeting costs $23,000. You sure you don't want to send an email? You know? Yeah. That's a fascinating tool. 
yeah i that's that's an interesting one if someone can build an even better version of that that works across all calendars uh or as a you know a, a plugin yeah that's cool i i i i've also heard of a best practice a recent best practice you talked about um having that kind of guide uh <clears throat> at companies having one or two days where there are just no meetings like yeah. wednesdays here there you there, there are zero meetings you cannot book a meeting for wednesday so that people can really dive into deep work and have that uninterrupted time that, uh, that, i think that's interesting one. yeah that's a good one yeah i mean to your point or uh like being able to being uninterrupted it does take i've i've read 20 minutes for someone who you know was in a good flow and then they're inter interrupted with either, with either a meeting or someone you know asking them a question which look people should be able to ask questions but um yeah to get back in that flow it takes an average of like 15 to 20 minutes which is wild and i, I think about that actually kind of often yeah i think the same thing with notifications too like don't ping an entire team with the at here command on Slack. I honestly, with my day job, if I'm like going to dive in and I feel it coming on, like if I'm caffeinated, I just had a great cup of coffee. I'm ready to dive into some great code. I will close Slack and yeah, don't ask me three, when I pop back in, don't ask me like, Hey, where were you? Like I was, I was doing my job, you know, when, when you get notifications that are like, Hey, at here, and then question that you could have just asked later, that takes me out of focus. If I'm like 45 minutes into a coding session and then I hear the ping, now I'm like, fuck, I just lost my train of thought. It takes me yeah. 20 minutes to answer the thing, another 30 minutes to get back into what I was doing. By that time, the meet, the next meeting's coming up. You just ruined my whole day. So The, the ad here is often, I've seen it abused. I've seen it overused. It's interesting, right? there's there's two things there i think you know i think people don't use i've seen teams who use the um uh status feature on slack very well right like oh i'm i'm walking my dog i'm eating lunch i'm deep in work until 3 p.m right people will, will write that so that you know people know when they're trying to slack them oh wait oh i shouldn't slack matt right now because you know his status as he's deep and work for three for two hours and this can wait so i've seen that used well i've seen also people just not use it and i think using it more is a good idea i've also i also think this is a whole separate topic that we could talk about another time but people who people use slack people write e write messages that should be emails in slack now which is part of it but like is part of the reason why Slack exists, right? To get people off email threads. But sometimes I think, you know, okay, don't, you know, like this didn't need to start in Slack, right? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm kind of shifting my because my um my mental my my uh, approach to Slack now. You know what I mean? Like this thread didn't need to like be pinging back and forth. Um throughout you know the morning like this idea it's kind of a memo that like i could respond to in the evening or at the next day and it didn't need to be a slack but that's yeah. that's a judgment call that's that's an interesting i mean i find that to be an interesting kind of like topic of of, of discussion
I actually love Slack if you can find a way to be good at using it asynchronously because yeah. the searching tools are way better on Slack than they are in email, in my opinion. Um, I notoriously delete like most of my emails after a certain amount of time just because I figure I'll never need them again. Um, I think the through line here is like just try to find a way to keep meetings in a certain time block so you don't screw up people's days and try to get really good at being asynchronous about how you work, especially if you're in a remote team. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Well, minus 7% between 4 to 6 p.m. I think that's a good sign that people are being a little more asynchronous or at least being a little more cognizant of remote teams. I don't know. That's a good signal to me. So that's why yeah. I put up the number. Um, it was a good topic. Um, before we wrap it, I have one last question for you, though. Sure. How many meetings a day for you is too many? Honestly, more than two. Um, right. Because if you think about how many hours there actually are in a working day and all those things you said, you know, kind of getting prepared for a meeting, concentrating after, like, during the meeting and afterwards, decompressing, right? Walking away from after talking for so long, it's kind of necessary. I think not everyone does that, but I think a lot of people need to. Um, and then on top of that, getting work done. I think three is is a probably too many. Uh, two is a good amount. <laughs> I say this, and you know, I've certainly had days in, in previous careers where it's back to back to back. But yeah, I, I three is what comes to mind. What about you? How many meetings is good for you? Yeah, I would say three is the absolute most, and would love them if they're back to back to back, as opposed to scattered throughout the day. Oh, so you like the back-to-back-to-back. -to -back -to -back. I'd prefer it, yeah. I would just prefer to group everything together. And I'm like, all right, I know that 12 to 2 is my meeting block, and then I'm done. I don't want to be in a meeting at 11, then again at 1.30, and then again at 4.30. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I'm with you on that. Yeah, awesome topic. Um, cool. All right, Matt. So I've got a number, and Put up a before number. I say it, I want to mention that I want this segment to go quick and fast, like the car crash that the company that provided us the number was. Sound good? Let's do it. All right. The number is negative $6 billion. Negative, negative six, $6 billion. billion. $6 billion. And this is so much. The headline here which I did not come up with. I saw this associated written by someone about this company and I thought it was a fantastic headline and it's from unicorn to unicorps. That's and I thought that was hilarious. Um, so the company is living social. And for those who don't know what living social is, you can think of it like Groupon. And if you don't know what Groupon is, you should get out from under your rock. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so Living Social and Groupon are daily deal sites. So you can, in your city, find local businesses that are offering some kind of deal. Are you familiar with these businesses? Absolutely. I remember Groupon 
and living social in 2011 being the the all the rage all the things all the experiences i wanted to do i found through groupon basically in 2011 right so once a fantastic business i'm going to run through some i'm going to run through a fast timeline of what happened here like the car crash of the company was ready <laughs> Two, 2007 yes, living social is started by a group of four friends in georgetown they launched it in a few cities to start, and when it started seeing some success, they made a big bet in January of 2011 to launch it in 25 more cities. This was a huge bet for them. They didn't know whether it would uh, crumble or succeed. It wound up succeeding. So by the end of summer that same year, they launched in another 25 cities. And essentially, over the next couple of quarters, they were just launching cities nonstop, growing the business. Um, in 2010, Amazon invested $175 million into Living Social, of which their, in to their total investment by the time the company went under was about a billion dollars. A billion dollars of money invested into Living Social. They went through rounds of layoff as it started failing. So in order of rounds, they laid off 400 people, another 400, 200, 160, and then the final 95 as they got acquired. Their CTO, Aaron Battalion, is quoted as saying they diluted all of their initiatives because they took on too much too fast. So basically a fast-burning match, rocket ship going up, 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 and then kaboom, they took on way too much. They were forced to start closing down businesses, specifically their international ones. Um, and in 2013, Groupon acquired their South Korean outfit for $260 million of which I imagine their founders did not make too much money from that sale because they had a series G at some point earlier that uh, the investors got their pound of flesh on it. So the deal was set up in a way where um, they would be required to pay back X amount of the investment and pay a 3% annual dividend, which Unfortunately, they didn't last enough annuums <laughs> to pay back any dividends before they would go under. Um, their fatal moment, a lot of people will point to, is a big hack in their system. So 50 million accounts and their account data were hacked by a group of hackers. Living Social made the decision to ask all 50 million of those accounts to reset their passwords. 20% never came back. And then in 2016, you can see I linked it in the show notes because it's hilarious if Google gives you the same layout. Groupon acquires Living Social for $0. And that is the way of saying it was non-reported, but it was also a non-material amount for Groupon. They, they basically acquired them in a fire sale. Some other interesting notes here is Living Social. I found out at one point they were doing... They had a February where they did 50 million in revenue and they were on track in that same year to do about a billion in revenue. They were what valued. Year was that? I, I think 2012. I didn't write the year down, but I should have. So don't quote me. But one of those years in their rocket ship growth, they yeah. were on track to do a billion. Uh, Living Social specifically was valued as high as $6 billion at one point. And that's where the negative $6 billion comes from because they exited at nothing. They made 
no money. Now, that's not to say the founders didn't walk with 10, 20, 30 million over the couple of years of amazing growth. Maybe they did. I'm not sure. But the idea that you blew $6 billion in value is insane to me. And to cap this awesome story off, this awesome car crash off, before I ask you a couple of questions, Groupon, the acquiring company, was also at its peak worth $6 billion on the stock market. Today, they're worth $227 million market cap. So they lost 99% of their value. And they had a $6 billion acquisition offer from Google, which the founders turned down. So that leads me to my first question, Carlos. Now that we observe the car crash, do you think, had you been in charge of Groupon and you were offered $6 billion from Google to sell your business, would you have known better and been able to get off the rocket ship? I think the easy answer is yes. Absolutely. Someone offers me and my founder, my my co-founder, $6 billion. Sure. <laughs> Let's, right? Take it and run. Um, I, there's a lot of hubris, I think. Ob there obviously clearly a lot of hubris to, to turn down $6 billion. People have done it, and it's the smart move. I, I think there's just a lot of macroeconomics I'm not aware of uh, to know why that was, why at the time they thought it was a good decision and why clearly it's a bad decision. Also, yeah, there's a lot of macro. Yeah. Anyway, I'll stop there. Do you think yeah. would you have got would you have gotten off the rocket ship, Matt? Let me turn the question yes. back on you. Yeah, I think clearly it depends on the business. I don't think like if you've started some health company and you're at like six billion dollar valuation and you know that the market cap, uh, the the TAM, the total addressable market is like five trillion, and you haven't even scratched the surface, and you're growing and profitable, maybe not. But Groupon, yeah, what is the ceiling, like, right? Like, what is coupons, how aware, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. I think the the acquiring company is important here. Like, if it's ABC Corp and they've offered you six billion in stock and you don't know if that stock's gonna be worth the shit in two years, then maybe you keep going. But Google, they could have offered me six billion in stock, no cash, and I would have took the deal because they're gonna that, be around. What uh, year did I think you say that offer was? 2013 or something like that. Let, and yeah. I'm actually curious, 2013 Google stock. Let's do this right. live. I'm curious right. what that would be worth, right? Right. So, all right, this might be too difficult to find live on a podcast, but okay, whatever. I'm sure it's many multiples more now. So you, you should have got off the rocket ship, dummy. Yeah, six six billion dollar offer. I mean, it's a great point. You gotta think, you know, founders, the hubris is like, oh, but you know, what it what could it be? What do they think the ceiling is for you know for the business? Yeah, I mean, to your point, like how many more potential revenue dollars are out there given the addressable right. market, given all the other factors that we can consider. But yeah. Get off the rocket ship. I agree. 
And hey, maybe we'll look up, we'll find that 2013 Google stock number, Google stock price number. Um, post it in the show notes or put it in the newsletter. Subscribe to our newsletter. Quick plug in. Subscribe to the newsletter. All right. Um, and last question on this story before we end it. Daily deals are apparently notoriously tough. So they started out as mostly email, which you spoke about in the last episode. Don't email blast people. A bunch of crap. No one wants to hear it. Um, but honestly, it's a simple business from a, a technology perspective, from a economic perspective. Like, okay, you get your businesses on board. You agree that some coupon value will be given to a customer who will then go purchase at that business. And as a result, the business wins some a little more revenue if they're doing it profitably. And uh, Groupon or Living Social takes a piece of that revenue. Pretty simple business. I don't understand how they operated non-profitably. Maybe their burn rate was way too high. They hired too many people. But what would you have done differently? Well, first of all, how sustainable is a business where you're giving coupons away? And also referring people to a business where that business can like just retain you as a customer, not through living social, right? You're essentially referring people to pe- to to something, assuming like that's a repeatable business, like a bakery, right? There are experience, like a lot of what I remember from living social is that a lot of those those coupons were experiences like bungee jumping, you know, wine tasting, skydiving. Stuff that you're not going to do on a consistent basis, like repeatedly, you know? Um, So the only thing I can think of where they could have maybe improved is try to help the business who just gave the 50% coupon a way to upsell, right? Or like buy a friend, some kind of referral thing that they get 100% of that revenue. I'm sure they tried that. It's it is something there along the lines of the lifetime value of the living social customer, because I can see why they were uh, not profitable because the cost of acquisition to get that customer and then like how much money they were actually paying for the platform must have been a pretty lopsided ratio, you know. So it's something I, I to, to answer the question: What would I have done to improve the business? what I've done differently is like focus somewhere along the lines of, of the LTV. So in hindsight, it's 2020, it's easy to say, but there probably is something in the SaaS, something SaaS related, right? Introducing an element of repeated, you know, revenue um, as opposed to like, Oh, you know, here's a coupon for 10% off this bungee jumping experience that you'll pay one time. And yes, you'll get a core group of people, a core group of, of, of audiences who are like, oh, living social, like, yes, coupon codes. I must, you know, every weekend I got to book something through living social. But mo- I think a lot of majority of people just like, yeah, you know, oh, uh, I want to do something this weekend for, you know, fun for my friend's birthday. Yeah, let's look at living social. And then there's like, like 20% chance they actually book something through living social. You know what I mean? Like it just didn't seem like a, a very repeatable high lifetime value thing. Like introducing right. an element where there's like a service for you is probably the way to go. 
Yeah, service for sure. I think people um, like streaks and they maybe should have went like thinking outside the box, like to the end consumer. So if you're doing some kind of, I don't know, uh, service or experience, maybe it's like, hey, end consumer, keep your streak alive. You've gone 12 months in a row of doing something interesting and spontaneous. Don't break your streak. You know, something yeah, like that. Yeah, gamifying it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're still you're still asking people to spend money off of like mostly off your platform. I guess you're, you know, it's interesting. It's just like Yeah, I would have tried to find some way to steer the money being spent back to the platform. Mm -hmm. and again, that's got to be some kind of service, right? That's got to be some value, some solution you're offering for someone who is of that mindset. So yeah, I probably would have mapped out like, who is this person that's like using uh, Living Social every weekend to do something, right? Oh, they probably, you know, want to hear about these events. Let's get a paid premium newsletter. I'm just riffing here, Billy. You know what I mean? Like thinking about who that person is, it's like, yeah, their core audience so data, right? Like the the person or the segment who are skydivers and bungee jumpers. Like, there's probably some premium skydiving newsletter out there. You know, yeah. I mean, that's that really one people... very very like specific vertical. I was thinking more so just like people who like love to do things on the weekends or people who love to find a good deal. You know, create a community around that. You know, um. I think there's more. Yeah. Maybe they did try to do this for all we know. I I, I didn't dive into like the, the, you know, I didn't dive into living socials Wikipedia, but. Yeah, this is, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. Um, I, I think that's the pod we should wrap, but I'm going to yes. leave the listeners with a question. If you were hearing this episode and you have thought of a fa fascinating way to approach this business differently, comment and tell us, email us. We will post our emails somewhere. Um, I'm a fantastic software engineer and I can build anything. <laughs> so let's go make $6 billion. What's, what's your approach to this business? Let's hear about it. This is your chance. Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of people are trying to build businesses out there and they can't find a technical co-founder. I'm your guy. I can build it. That's it. That's the pod. Goodbye. Matt, it was a pleasure. It was fun. Later. Talk to you later.